We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we present today and pay our respects to the elders past and present. Jika, I'm your presenter Matt, here on Cool and Land with Ethan, RMIT's most decorated hosts. We would like to welcome you to episode 4 of the Undercover Podcast. From sports scandals and haunted theatres to answering questions like who is Rome and what is Wonky, this episode will dive deep into five unique stories produced by RMIT's finest reporters. So strap up and join us as we unravel these hidden stories of Melbourne. We begin with the Young Liberal Party. Like every political party, the Liberals have seen some highs and lows. Actually, more lows as of late, and with tough battles since, you know, 1998. I'm not too sure why, but reporter Jack Landon just might. Well, first of all, ladies and gentlemen, a short time ago, I did ring Premier Daniel Andrews and offered the Liberal and National Party's congratulations to him on his and the Labor Party's re-election to government tonight. That right there is the voice of former Liberal leader and member for Bulleen, Matthew Guy, conceding defeat to the Labor Party in 2022. The Liberal Party has been in opposition for 20 of the last 24 years at state level, and its federal members have not won a majority of seats in Victoria since 1998. The Victorian Liberal Party is unelectable and has no one to blame but themselves, the state president has told members. The scathing assessment from Greg Marimbula follows the party's devastating recent loss at the Aston by-election. The continued losses are making it tough for the Liberals to gain new voters. Former Secretary of the Young Liberals of Victoria, Jeremy Mann, explains why the group is struggling to gain new members, especially in the younger demographic. I, my, my first election campaign was 2018, um, and I can remember vividly, I think it was the 22nd of November 2018, we were all waiting for the, the fall of Daniel Andrews to come in after six o'clock that night, and, and we're at the, the Mordialic Bowls Club, and I can just remember seeing the TV and, and some of the shocking results that we got during that election and, and just thinking, wow, this, you know, this, this is clearly the lowest point of the party. We have to come back from here. And then fast forward four years later and I'm in an Irish pub in Rome in the morning waiting for the election results to come in from Victoria, <laughs> thinking that coming back to Australia a few months' time that we'd have a Liberal government in Victoria and that Daniel Andrews would have been overthrown and we just didn't achieve that result at all. So I think that one of the main things is lack of direction to really start winning elections. The, the way that the party's been run, I just don't think has focused on, on actually winning elections. I think we've been too obsessed with image. The Young Liberal Party was initially founded in Victoria in 1945 but its roots can be traced back to the 1930s when a number of university-based programs were formed to support the United Australia Party. Throughout the 50s and 60s, the young Liberals in Victoria played a significant role in shaping the party's policy agenda and promoting conservative values. Many prominent figures in the Liberal Party of Australia got their start in the young Liberals, including John Howard, who would go on to become the country's Prime Minister. Now, the young Liberals are hanging on by a thread, 
With no future in power for the foreseeable future, man dives into where the party is going wrong internally. If I'm being, if I'm being brutally honest, I, I don't think that there's, at, at least what we're seeing at the moment, there's much hope for in any sort of grassroots growth amongst the young liberals. There are certain attempts to recruit people at, at a younger age, but I, I think they're mostly factionally orientated rather than being sort of for the, the benefit of the party. There's sort of been this blame that's been put on young liberals for not being able to get out there and volunteer. I just think it, it, it's because of this, this lack of interest and I think that that really comes from the top down. Some of the decisions that are made by, by the top where we're just not winning elections. So why would we want to go out and campaign and, and, and support a um, sort of a sinking ship? On the flip side, the Greens have seen a significant rise in their memberships, having now over 15,000 members. Jordan Steele John was declared elected at age 23, making him the youngest sitting member in the Australian Parliament and the youngest senator. Steele John explains why he thinks the Greens have seen an uptick in younger members. Because we are explicitly committed to the principle of grassroots participatory democracy, we build structures that push back against that and maintain that grassroots connection to the point where we can join at 16 as I did. You can go along to your local group meeting. You can convince that group of your position. You know, let's say theoretically that the green should change its colour to purple. And if you can convince your green, your group to do that, then that group can go along to the state-based monthly meeting and put that as a proposal to the entire party. And every other group then has to take a position on whether we should change our colour to purple. As Mann puts it, the young Liberals are a sinking ship. Will they get back to their grassroot ways like the Greens? Or will their path of over 75% of their voter base being baby boomers or older continue? The Liberal Party in Victoria really has a lot of soul searching to do. Moving on from one ghost town to another, <clears throat> reporter Tiss McCracken dives headfirst into Melbourne's spookier story. Do you believe in ghosts? Yes. On the fence? No. Yes. Sort of. Yes, because I'm not able to see them, but when I was a small kid, I experienced or felt a presence. Melbourne CBD is said to be home to some of Victoria's most haunted buildings, and residents have long reported ghostly sightings across the city. Back in 2017, In Daily magazine reported that more than a third of Aussies believe in ghosts. But I'm a little sceptical. So tonight, I'm going on a guided ghost tour to see if I can answer the age-old question, are ghosts real, and are they haunting the streets of Melbourne? It's a busy Saturday night here in Melbourne, and I've just arrived at our first stop on the ghost tour. Now, admittedly, I don't know much about ghosts, just yet anyway, but with so many people around and the noises of a bustling city ringing loud, it does make me wonder whether any ghosts are going to make an appearance tonight. On tonight's tour, I'll visit Pink Alley, the Princess Theatre and other famous destinations who some believe are haunted by the spirits of those who died there or once called them home. But before I try to make contact with these ghosts, I'd better learn a little more about them. From Hairspray to Jersey Boys, the Princess Theatre is home to many international musical productions. 
and with its many great performances, The Princess is home to yet one very special person, a resident ghost by the name of Frederick Federici. On March 3rd, 1888, Federici was performing at opening night in The Princess, playing the role of Mistopheles in Forced. As part of the show, Federici sinks into the fires of hell, also known as the trapdoor on the stage floor. But as he was being lowered, he suffered a heart attack and died. And ever since that tragic night, Federici has been spotted in his 1800s coattails, roaming the halls of the theatre and entertaining audiences with his voice. I spoke to Gemma Grant, an usher at the theatre, to hear a little bit more about the resident-friendly ghost. In the dress circle, there's this one seat that they save, used to save every night on the opening nights of shows. And I don't know if it's like an electrical fault or whether it's Federici himself, but there's a light on top of one of these seats that flickers a lot. And I guess there's like a part of me that definitely thinks that with such an untimely death doing something you loved, that there's some kind of trace of him somewhere in the theatre, definitely. Although I didn't get to hear the voices of Federici that night, I'll certainly be on the lookout the next time I visit the princess. But let's continue on with the tour. I'm here in what is now known as Pink Alley, but was once referred to as Gun Alley. Our guide Chloe seems to think the ghost of Alma Turchk is here with us tonight. And with two dousing rods, we're going to ask Alma some questions. Now, I feel that Alma is here with us tonight, so I think we should definitely have a try asking some questions. Ray Fortes, another tour attendee, also held the dousing rods in an attempt to connect with Alma, and I'm keen to hear about his experience. Did you feel a presence beyond those rods? Not on the rods, but I did feel a colder chill or wind on me at that time. Now, apart from a flickering light in the adjacent parking lot, I didn't see or get the feeling that Alma was here tonight. And with our tour coming to a close, a ghostly sighting seems increasingly unlikely. Before I headed home, I wanted to have a chat with our tour guide, Chloe, on how she came to believe in ghosts. Well, I believed very heavily when I was younger. And then as I grew older, I became more skeptical. Um, but then I, something got into me and I actually, I wanted to go on one of these tours and I was so engaged by the tour, I decided I wanted to become a tour guide. And then even when I started running the tours, I was quite skeptical of everything, but the more and more tours I've run, it's I've experienced a few things and I've met so many people that have had experiences as well and that's what's turned me back into a believer. While I didn't encounter any ghosts on the tour, hearing the experiences of others has challenged my opinions on whether they really do exist. But I'm still quite sceptical and I can't help but think every ghostly encounter must have a rational explanation. But who knows? Maybe ghosts are real and maybe they do call Melbourne home. And if there's one thing I have learned, it's to not be too afraid the next time you see a light flicker or a voice singing to you in the distance. Why are only the most perfect looking fruit displayed in the stores? I don't know, I kind of feel bad for the ones left out. Black Eyed Peas said at first, where's the love? Reporter Joe Horrigan answers the important questions about Wonky and what happens to these forgotten fruits. Scrolling through Instagram one afternoon, I stumbled across an ad for a new alcoholic seltzer called Wonky made from fruit and vegetables that are rejected by supermarkets because of their appearance. In an age where sustainability is at the forefront of everyone's mind, I was quite surprised to realise that I hadn't really seen anything like this being done by any other alcoholic brands. It led me on a quest to discover things I never knew and unearth Australia's massive food waste issue. Did you know Australia alone throws away 7.6 million tonnes of food every year? 
Did you know that wasted food costs the Australian economy a hefty $36.6 billion a year? Or that the amount of land used to grow wasted food covers the state of Victoria? And all this being the result of things like 25% of fruit or veg never leaves the farm based on its appearance? Or the fact that supermarkets won't shelf lifelong milk if it has an expiry date of six months or less? Well, neither did I, to be honest. In an age where we claim to care about saving the planet and doing everything we can to reduce our carbon footprint, these facts shocked me. But it led me to realise how important it is to act on the issue because it can be fixed. In this episode, I'm going to take a deep dive into this environmental issue and find out how a new local business is planning to save the planet one drink at a time. The food wastage crisis in this country isn't an issue that's going to be fixed overnight, but three Monash Uni students have been able to take a step in the right direction, bursting into the market with a new alcoholic seltzer brewed from wasted fruit and vegetables, making it the first of its kind in the country. Max Mulman, Gabe Tucker and Bridget Lancel are the brains behind the operation called Wonky and I spoke with them about their game-changing invention. Wonky is an idea that started in the Fast Track Accelerator program on the basis that a quarter of all produce never leaves the farm. So we took this stat and we wanted to make a fun and exciting product that uses misshapen produce and gives consumers a way of contributing to their local environment but also have something tasty. When speaking with co-founder Max Mulman, he told me that the timing of the launch coincides with people's want to help save the planet. Coming available to the public for the first time in June after the success of their crowdfund campaign, Wonky aims to set a trend, encouraging people to do the right thing by the environment, but also the easy thing. There's a huge shift in consumer preferences, like everyone right now cares about sustainability, it's on the forefront of our mind, but it's not particularly accessible. So when you look at the category of alcohol, there's not at the time when we started, there was zero options for sustainable alcohol. Ugly Vodka came in, but they're kind of just doing a spirit. Wonky is that way of having something that's really fun and exciting. And it's a drink that is blowing up at the moment. Like seltzers are growing at 40% year on year. It's very on brand. It's happening at the moment. So it begs the question, how are a team of inner city uni students sourcing all this wasted fruit? Well, Wonky has teamed up with local business Farmers Pick who have built their brand around and specialise in tackling the major food waste issue in Australia. Co-founder Josh Ball says they aim to reduce wastage by 50% in the country, proving that ugly fruit and vegetables that aren't acceptable for the supermarket shelf are just in fact as tasty, nutritious and as fresh as the ones we do see. We think there's, you know, the power and the ability within the industry itself to halve food waste uh, in the coming years by sort of 2025. We think that's it's actually achievable if everyone puts their mind to it um, we'd love to see food waste close to or edible food waste eliminated by the end of this decade we've, we're an innovative species and you know whilst we've destroyed things along the way we've got the ability to really you know focus on problems and fix them uh, really quick when we need to so I, I think the the capability is there and I think that yeah the determination and the focus is building as well across across industry, across government, uh, and across across the board. So uh, I think it's an exciting decade and an important decade as well. When focusing on Wonky, Josh discussed the importance of setting a trend for young and innovative like-minded individuals to follow. He is hopeful that we're going to see many more of these brands popping up in the future, helping eliminate the food waste issue in Australia. I think innovation around food is, is critical um, and innovation with, with purpose in mind of 
fixing these challenges that we have. I think that the guys from Wonky are really onto something and you know, the more the more ways that consumers can tackle this problem, um, the easier it will be as a collective. So I, I really hope that they're on to the, at the start of a trend um, and we, we sort of see this becoming the norm um, in not only in, in drinks, but there's, there's a broader application there as well, which I hope really yeah comes to a front. With the next few years tipped to be both critical in getting on top of the food waste issue in Australia and climate change as a whole, it will be interesting to see whether Wonky will be a trailblazer of its generation, creating a brand and model that will continue to be replicated for years to come, creating a better future. In recent years, the sporting industry has seen an increase in drug scandals from its players. From the AFL's illicit drug policy to social media, reporter Annalise Ireland gives us the latest. In today's society, drugs are more prevalent than ever. In 2017, it was reported that one in six Victorians had taken drugs in the last 12 months, up 15% from 2016. And it is no exception when it comes to athletes. Entry inside 50, Jones, going to need someone front and centre. Martin, the sniffy there. Now he runs with a right foot. No, no. Sends the Tigers in your frenzy. The effectiveness of the AFL's illicit drug policy has come under fire after the suspension of Jack Ginnivan and Bailey Smith, two AFL players who have filmed using illegal substances within the last year. Whilst many former players and officials have been calling for reform, the other key factor to focus on is the prevalence of social media and how the effects of leaking videos can damage the reputation of players. The question is, can we actually change the policy or is social media just too prevalent? First, let's break down the AFL's policy. It's a three-strike policy with a player receiving a $5,000 fine whilst undergoing counselling and target testing under a first strike. At this stage, the player is still anonymous. On a second strike, a player's name will be made public and they will serve a four-match suspension. By a third strike, they will receive a 12-match suspension. Former General Manager of Football Operations for the AFL, Adrian Anderson, was part of the team that originally introduced the illicit drugs policy to the game. When I asked him about the usage of substances in the AFL within the past decade, he said that the current policy is less radical than what it was previously. When we introduced the illicit drug policy at the AFL, it was really based on, I didn't know how to deal with it, so sort medic, sort, you know, advice, you know, um, the medical officers at the AFL um, about the, what's the most effective way of trying to deal with um, illicit drugs. And also, one of the key points to remember is that we asked the players to agree to be tested um, in, um, at any, basically at any time which is quite unusual in most workplaces, and that often gets overlooked. From a medical perspective, the policy works. However, the increased use of drugs and mobile phones has created this tension with the effectiveness of the policy as a whole. With no update in the last seven years, many are arguing that this doesn't reflect the attitudes or issues of this generation and their usage with social media. For Ginevan, he was recorded taking illicit substances in the toilets of the Torquay Hotel. The video was leaked on social media about two weeks after the incident on the eve of the AFL season. As a result, Ginevan was banned for, for opening two rounds of the season. In Smith's case, he was caught taking drugs in a nightclub and after the video was leaked, he was suspended for two games and recorded a strike under the drug policy. Smith and Ginevan's suspensions reveals how damaging social media can be towards the AFL and its players. 
Anderson believes that social media is just a reality of life today, with the AFL having minimal control over what gets posted on the platforms. You know, they're, they're a lot more exposed um, than what they you know, have been in the past. So it's a bit scary, I think, for people who are in the public eye these days that, you know, anything, things like that, anything can be basically recorded while you're out and about. They just have to be conscious of that. With social media acting as a surveillance tool for the players, there have been discussions whether or not the drug policy should try and account for these public platforms. However, individuals like Anderson said the current policy is still effective. I don't know if the policy itself has to change as a result of social media. I think people are liable to be... If they're doing things publicly, that brings the league into disrepute and they risk getting a, a sanction like what happened with Ginevan. And the advice of people who are you know, experts on dealing with drug issues and how to you know, change people's behaviour and whatever, it changes in relation, you know, over time, then the policy can change over time as well. After the discussion with Anderson, I reached a conclusion that whilst we aren't able to control what people post on social media, the drug policy needs to introduce protections for the players who take drugs. Yet the reality is, only one player is being punished for taking illicit substances when another 50 to 60 players are partaking. Who's Roan? Does he sing? Does he play? What does he play? An instrument? Footy or ball or what? Uh, I don't know. Does he... Please just end this. Tell me about him right now. You serious? I can't tell you, but you know who can? Chloe. Chloe Nash, our reporter, has some information on this Roan guy. Let's see what she has to say. Located on the long-abandoned third floor of Flinders Street Station lies a mysterious set of artworks known as Time. Described as a love letter to mid-century Melbourne, this exhibition has captured the hearts of many art enthusiasts and people in the state as tickets began to sell out every day. From the popularity of his artworks in Melbourne to producing exhibitions all over the world, there is one important question we need to answer, and that is, who is Roan? Do you guys know the street artist Roan? No. No. Yes. No. As the majority of you don't know him, let me tell you a bit more about Roan as an artist. In the streets of Geelong, Tyrone Wright was just an average 43-year-old who had a passion for art, but across Melbourne and the world, he was known as the famous artist Roan. Like the majority of artists, he has a distinct style which has become a reoccurring motif in his artwork. Nicknamed as Jane Doe, the artist is renowned for only depicting women in his work as he conveys the line drawn between beauty and decay. Famously, Roan displays his artwork in unique locations, typically using abandoned buildings, street walls and historic rooms. If you Google Roan's artwork, you will see all his large-scale paintings which demand the attention of its viewers. Pretty it's cool. cool. Yeah. 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 <laughs> his work is... Very amazing. I went to his exhibition. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Looks great. Roan has had his work displayed in many different countries, with his most recent exhibition, Time, located in Melbourne's own Flinders Street station. Depicting a fictional history, these murals aim to transport viewers to post-World War II in Melbourne, an era when European migrants ruled the bustling manufacturing industries. Key to this sold-out exhibition was its location, inside Flinders Street Station's hidden ballroom, where Roan offered his audience insight to the role this busy station plays for the city. 
I unfortunately wasn't able to attend the exhibition, but we will hear from Holly Tonro, who was lucky enough to experience the artworks in person. It's really good. I loved it. I loved all the different rooms and like, it was just an experience in itself. I think my favorite room was like the library room with all the books. Yeah, I usually try and go to the most relevant exhibitions. I really liked it. I thought it was something very unique. Although a highly recognized artist now, Roan wasn't always accepted and ran into some issues with the police early on in his career. In the early 2000s, he started by decorating skateboards and skate parks before beginning to paint on the walls of Melbourne, where his fame began to pick up. As the laws surrounding street art are still a grey area, it is up to artists to do their research and get permission from businesses and local councils if they are wanting to use property walls. Roan is undoubtedly a street artist, but has also had his work displayed in many art galleries all over the world, including Melbourne's own NGV. So, what do people think about the location of his latest exhibition time, and where else would people like to view his art? Good spot. There is, I don't know, it's like the only other places would be like in the laneways, but I feel like it works there. I know the State Library obviously has a lot of exhibitions. Oh, Hosea Lane could be cool, actually. It's not my favourite, but, like, no, it's cool. It's, like, a cool, like, tourist spot. Yeah. Um, but I was just saying, if they did, like, an exhibition there, that could be cool. With Roan's exhibition of the installation now closed, it will be exciting to see what he has in store for the future of the art industry. But until then, he will just be another mystery for us to solve. And that, my friends, marks the end of episode four. This podcast wouldn't have been possible without our reporters Annalise Ireland, Joe Horrigan, Jack Landon, Tess McCracken, and Chloe Nash. We would also like to thank our producer, Michelle Tonko, assistant producer Olivia Sanders, and executive producers Tito Ambio and Lisa DeVisi for making this episode come alive. And finally, we would like to give a big thank you to our audience for joining us as we close another chapter to the Hidden Stories of Melbourne. And until then, I'm your presenter, Ethan. And your other presenter, Matt, signing off for today. Thank you.